Today is a special day in which fathers are honored and often they are given a special Father's Day meal, maybe some Father's Day gifts. It's about fathers. We often celebrate different occasions like birthdays as well. In my house growing up, on your birthday you got your special birthday meal, you got special presents, special accolades on your birthday. The birthday day is all about you. Oh, I'd imagine there's something proper and appropriate about having one out of 60, uh, 365 days being your special day. But one of the great problems in our heart and life and certainly in Western culture is that 365 days out of the year are our special day. And it's all about me, myself, and I. It's all about my needs, my wants. And it's passages like this in John chapter 17 where we, as I mentioned last week, we're able to hear the heartbeat of Jesus that it, it, it helps us to change our compass north to see that all of our existence and all of redemption is not about us but it's about the glory of God. This was Jesus' passion. This was his heartbeat, was for God's honor, for the reputation of the triune God. And we see this very clearly in the prayer that Jesus prays. We we began to see uh, five ways last week in which Jesus pursues the glory of God. And this was so that we might align our hearts and lives with the glory of God. Uh, Last week we saw the reflection of the glory. We saw this in verse 1 where Jesus prays, The hour has come, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come, the hour of Jesus' death. Remember, this is in the context of the evening before Jesus' execution. And on the divine clock... The hour had arrived, the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. And he prays to the Father, and the first request is that the Son would be glorified so that the Father may be glorified. That the, the Father is glorified in the Son's glorification. We, we often understand this in our own experience as our children succeed in life. It brings great joy and honor to the parents. The converse is also true as children fail and don't do well. It's often to the shame and reproach of their parents. Jesus was going to glorify the Father as He was glorified. And so this is what He prays. And then secondly, He also uh, glorifies the Father with the right to give eternal life. The right to give eternal eternal life he says all all authority over all flesh has been given to me to give eternal life to all those whom you have given me jesus has the authority to give eternal life because of his cross work that he is about to accomplish because of his finishing that work and upholding that covenant of redemption Dying for those people who had been given to him by the Father, he has the right to give eternal life. And this brings honor to God. 
Thirdly, we saw last week the relationship granted that this eternal life Jesus defines is not only a quantitative life, life that goes on forever, but it's qualitative life. It's to know the true and living God. And, and this makes sense that God would be glorified not merely in delivering people from eternal destruction, although He is glorified through that, but also in them entering into a relationship with Him, to know Him, to enjoy Him, to love Him for all eternity. And so this morning, we will look at two more ways in which Jesus glorifies the Father. He glorifies the Father by the requirement accomplished in verse 4. Notice this prayer. Jesus is talking to the Father. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which, which you have given me to do. Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Jesus is here speaking in anticipation of what he is going to do the very next morning, as if he had already finished that work. Now, we, we know at this point, Jesus has not yet died upon the cross. But it's almost as if it's a done deal. All, the table has been set. His life has been lived. A life of perfect righteousness for 33 and a half years. He knows exactly what is on the horizon the next morning. And he is going to pull the trigger on that and the work will be accomplished. And he, he connects this again with glorifying God. I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work with which you have given me to do. Now, how do we know that this is that what Jesus is talking about is the cross work that he does actually finish the next day? Well, because this phrase accomplish, or we might translate it finish the work is the same word that's used in John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth, hanging upon the cross, and it says, therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, here it is, it is finished. It is accomplished. Same word translated accomplished in John 17, 4. It is finished. So the work that the Father had given him to do, that Jesus had accomplished, Jesus had finished, is the cross work. It was the work that was given by the Father to the Son. Notice here the perfect unity that exists between the Father and the Son in this work of redemption. That the Father gives the assignment to the Son. He gives them the cross work to carry out, to pay the punishment on behalf of the sins of all those who had been given to Him by the Father. And the Son comes down to earth and executes that mission. And so as Jesus is on the eve of the accomplishment of that, He says, I have finished the work with which You have given Me to do. And in doing so, He glorified the Father. 
And again, this makes sense. That the obedience of Jesus in accomplishing this work would bring honor to the Father. When children obey their parents, it brings honor to their parents. When children disobey their parents, it brings dishonor. And you parents understand that when you're maybe at the grocery store and your child begins to throw a fit, throw a tantrum, I want that gum! Give me! And you just kind of feel your face getting warm. And you feel the temperature of anger rising. Why? Because you're, you're now embarrassed. You, 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 shame has come upon you as your child is throwing a fit in the grocery store. Dishonor, right? But at the same time, when your child obeys you and honors you and does what you tell them to do, There is honor. And so Jesus honors the Father by finishing, accomplishing the work that the Father gave Him to do. Now what was this work? This work, as we mentioned, was the cross work. But why was the cross work needed? It was needed because we're guilty. Ever since the days of Adam and Eve in the garden, there has been rebellion against God. God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That death would come into this world and and physical death, but also spiritual death where there would be a separation of the relationship between man and the Creator. And, And man now has a bounty on his head before God. Guilty. This is something that the young people are learning on Wednesday evenings in the catechism class. What happens to the wicked at death? They suffer punishment while they're kept by God for the day of judgment. And then they've memorized Luke 16, 22 and 23. The rich man also died and was This past week was what happens to the wicked in the day of judgment. Answer, they shall be cast into the lake of fire. And they memorize Revelation twenty fifteen. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of of fire sobering words that's what we all deserve and so when Jesus was accomplishing the work that the father gave him to do he was in 
his body absorbing all the torments of hell for three hours upon that cross, receiving the judgment of God in himself so that sinners like you and I could be accepted before him. This is huge. Friends, God is a God of righteousness and justice. He does not wink at our rebellions. He must punish them. As any good judge executes judgment upon criminals, so God must execute the judgment of hell upon sinners. God's red dot scope is aimed at each one of us. And each hour that goes by is one hour closer to death. And so you desperately need what the Lord Jesus has done. This work is tremendously important. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, in His saving work upon the cross, you need to trust wholly in Him and what He's done. Don't be so foolish as to think, well, He did a little bit of work and now I'm going to do my work. As if He didn't finish the job. As if His accomplishing of the work was lacking in something. Friends, if that's the case, then you will be the one to get the glory and not Him. But when we hear the songs that are sung in heaven in the book of Revelation, they don't say, worthy am I because I believed in the Lord. No, worthy is who? The Lamb who was slain. He did it. You start singing songs like that, you're going to be bounced right out of heaven. He gets the honor. But also this teaches us here, I think, the reality of the definiteness or the particularity of the work of Jesus in dying for his own elect people. Did you notice that? I mean, there are good Christians who believe that Jesus died for every single person without exception. But, I think they're wrong. <laughs> because I think when we look at a passage like this, Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you had given me to do. Well, what was the work that he gave him to do? Well, Jesus tells us what that work was in John chapter 6, in verse 38 and 39. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. Of all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That the will of the Father was for the Son to save those given ones. And can I suggest to you that if the aim of Jesus was to save every single person without exception, then 
then Jesus failed miserably. Because last time I checked, hell was filled with a multitude of people. And if Jesus died to save them and they're in hell, then Jesus tried to do something, but he wasn't able to accomplish it. But Jesus would glorify the Father by finishing, accomplishing the work that he set out to do so that all those who had been given to him by the Father would be raised up on the last day. We see this throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For whom? For the sheep. Who are the sheep? Verse 16 says, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They will hear my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. In other words, there's some who are sheep who have not yet heard the voice of Jesus, who have not yet begun to follow Jesus, but when they hear the voice of Jesus, they will follow Jesus, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, who could these sheep be? They've not yet believed, but they will one day believe. In the language of the Apostle Paul, they are the elect. In the language that Jesus gives here, they are the given ones. In John 10, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, I gave them eternal life, and they will never perish. Again, speaking of these sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And in the same context, there are some who do not believe in Jesus And Jesus says, what? You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And so Jesus would lay down his life for the sheep. He says later on in John chapter 13, I lay my life down for my friends. Now, immediately, if you're a good Bible student, you think, well, doesn't the Bible speak of him dying for the world or dying for all? And I think the the language, those ambiguous phrases of world and all are used to speak of all people without distinction, not all people without exception. That that the term world is used not to, to highlight that Jesus isn't dying merely for the ethnic Jewish people, the ethnic Israel, but he he's dying for Gentiles, a multiplicity of people. He's dying for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. See, God is glorified in the Son accomplishing the mission that He set out to do. And again, can I suggest to you, if the work that the Father gave the Son to do was to rescue every single person without exception, then it doesn't give as much glory to God because... The mission was not accomplished. If you would contract with somebody to have a deck built on, built behind your house, nice deck in which you could sit out there in the summer months and 
sip on coffee as the sun rises, and you pay them a lot of money, you know, cost of lumber's up, cost of everything's up, and they get half of the deck done. And they never finish the rest. Is that somebody you would recommend? Is that something that brings honor to that company? No, right? It's a disgrace, right? They didn't, they didn't put steps on it. There's not a railing. There's, there's still gaps in it. You can't, you know, you can't even put... Put an umbrella and chairs back there. Neighbors are looking at it, thinking, yikes. Kind of hillbilly neighbors do we have? So also, if the mission of Jesus isn't accomplished... It doesn't bring glory to the Father. But also, you may say, well, this is it's very abstract theology this morning. I was expecting a Father's Day message. But also, can I suggest very practically... For your assurance of salvation, for your comfort, this doctrine is important. We say, how so, Matt? I mean, you tell people that Jesus died only for the elect, they're going to be biting their fingernails wondering, am I elect or am I? Well, believe and you know that you're elect. Believe on the Lord Jesus. But also, can I suggest to you that if Jesus died for you in the same way that he died for Pharaoh, Judas, Hitler, Pol Pot, and Stalin. And that list of people is in hell right now. And Jesus died for them in the same way, and as much as he died for you, what hope do you have? What confidence, what comfort, what assurance do you have that you will escape the same fate as those men? We say, but I believe. Oh, so it's dependent upon you. Hmm. Good luck with that one. If your certainty of salvation is dependent upon you, then your assurance, the grounds of your assurance is on very shaky ground. Now you must believe. You have to believe. And belief in a very real sense is, is the receipt that God gives through the purchase of the Lord Jesus. He bought your faith as well. Did you know your faith is a gift from God? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 says, it has been grace to you not only to suffer for Christ, but also to believe in his name. Or how about this one? From very familiar verse, you may not have thought of it in this context, but it is by grace you have been saved. Sound familiar? Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this 
is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is the gift of God? Salvation, certainly. But also, faith. Your faith is a gift from God. It's kind of like when you're leaving Sam's Club. And you have to show the receipt. And they look at the receipt and they start scanning stuff. Your faith is the receipt that you have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And so that your the grounds of your confidence and comfort and assurance before God is what Jesus has done upon the cross. That the mission has been accomplished. That there is perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in accomplishing the work of your salvation. And all of this works together for the glory of God. Now, I know many of you may still have questions and may not be convinced. That's okay. You can ask me some more questions on another occasion. But I'm convinced that passages like this make what is sometimes called a universal atonement really impossible to coincide with Scripture. I mean, sometimes it gets the, the bad name of limited atonement well you're limiting the atonement Matt well everybody limits the atonement either you limit the atonement in its effectiveness or you limit it in its scope so the universal atonement limits the atonement in its effectiveness and the particular redemption limits it in scope let me ask you this would you if if you were building a bridge from New York City all the way to London, is it better to have a bridge that goes from the width of New York City all the way down to Miami and covers most of Europe that only goes halfway across or a narrow bridge that only is as wide as the city of New York City but actually goes all the way across to London? I'll take the bridge that goes all the way across. Not the bridge that could fit everybody on, but it only goes part of the way and you have to swim the rest through sharks. Well, that's the requirement accomplished. A lot of times fathers eat steak on Father's Day. Well, we're we're giving you guys some steak to chew on this morning. There's not only the requirement accomplished, but also, secondly and lastly, the restoration of glory. In verse 5, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, Before the world was. Now Jesus prays this prayer to the Father. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. And this also is one of the ways in which Jesus is going to glorify the Father. Because again, remember, the glory of the Son works for the glory of the Father. 
And so again, this is now the second time in this prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, glorify me. And the fascinating thing about this prayer is, is it, it's, it's, a, it's a weighty request, right? It, it tells us something of the, this inter-Trinitarian relationship that has existed for all eternity. It also assumes that there's something in Jesus in his incarnation and humiliation during his season of ministry when he was here on the earth that had, dare I say, veiled something of his glory that now here towards the end of his earthly ministry, he's praying, Father, restore unto me or glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world ever was. So in what ways was the glory of the Lord Jesus veiled during his incarnation, during his enfleshment, during his season here on earth? Because the rest of scriptures do speak to that, right? I mean, Philippians chapter 2, that classic section, sometimes called the Carmen Christi, who being in the very nature God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he, there it is, he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant or a slave, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death. In what ways was Jesus humbled? Well, certainly we see this in the reality that Jesus, I mean, were we to think of, you know, when the Savior of this world comes to this earth, he, he should be born, you know, maybe as a, uh, in Caesar's household. But he's not, right? He's born in a carpenter's house. A blue-collar worker. He's born of a virgin, Mary. How about where would he born, be born and during this time in history? Perhaps he would be born in the, in the city of Rome. But no. He's born in Bethlehem. And that's like Lisbon, Ohio. Just a little podunk town. Just a handful of People, rural. But not only that, as he comes to this earth, he subjects himself to earthly authorities. You know, if the, the police were to pull Jesus over, he, he, he would have pulled over. Uh, or how about this? He's born in the house of Mary and Joseph. He would have obeyed Mary and Joseph. Could you imagine that? The eternal Son of God having to do His chores, having to wash dishes, having to mow the lawn, 
but he subjected himself to earthly authorities. Not only that, in his human nature, he was subject to all the infirmities of living in a fallen world. He knew what it was like to get tired. We see that in John chapter 4 where he's, he's, he's tired at the well. He's thirsty. He experienced hunger, weariness, bitter agonies. He even experienced what it was like living in this fallen world with all of its rebellion and evils. I mean, I mean, Think about uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 when it speaks of Lot. It says, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The passage tells us that Lot was tormented by the wickedness that he saw around him. His soul was grieved. And that was Lot, right? I mean, you know, some of us may think he's Lot really even in heaven, right? But yet the Bible says he was a righteous man. Well, how much more do you think the Lord Jesus as he saw the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, as he saw the nastiness of his siblings, as he observed even the sin that still existed in Mary and Joseph's heart and life, his soul would have been tormented. All of this in his, his real humanity as he subjected himself and humbled himself coming to this earth, taking upon that additional nature, that human nature that veiled his glory. Not only that, he's forsaken by friends. He experienced betrayal by those who were closest to him at his hour of greatest need. I mean, it wasn't just Peter, actually. It was all the disciples abandoned Jesus. And then, shockingly, we hear his cries from Golgotha, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's something of a mystery there that takes place as Jesus is being treated as a sinner on the cross. As he, he is absorbing all the furies of hell uh, for every believer who would ever believe upon his back. He's absorbing that torment that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you would have looked at Jesus if you were living upon the earth at that time. And, and, and he didn't, like those medieval pictures, have a halo around his head. or There, there was no, no glory emanating from him. He looked like an ordinary person. His glory was veiled. 
And this is why the, the, the hymn writer Wesley would write, Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. You see, Wesley is there trying to capture something of the reality of the incarnation, the mystery, if you will. Because that's really what it is going on here. I mean, we get something of the, like the, uh, what do you call those things in the water? The, it's like a mountain that tip, uh, the, took the Titanic down. Iceberg. Okay, we get the tip of the iceberg. Thank you. We get the tip of the iceberg. It's just like peeking out, right? It, that's what we get. We get, the, we get what, what, what we see in the pages of Scripture, but below the water, in the mystery of God, that, that He's chosen not to reveal everything to us, but to reveal that which is needful. Our profundities and immensities that go beyond our full comprehension, that maybe, maybe in eternity future, God will be pleased to unveil to us, but... For now, we just kind of scratch our head and say, how does that work? I don't know. But something of the reality and his humiliation that, that he prays, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. So that in his incarnation, there was, there was something of a veiled glory. And he's praying for a kind of a restoration of glory. A glory that I had with you before the world ever was. And, and this now takes us to, as we see the humiliation at the, at the incarnation, at the crucifixion. Jesus now speaks of a time and eternity past when he was in this eternal love relationship with the Father that he describes as a glory that he had with the Father. Hopefully you have your deep sea diving gear on this morning. Not your little scuba, your snorkeling gear. You're just kind of floating at the top. No, we're, we're going down deep. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in an eternal relationship before the creation of the world. I mean, this, this takes us back to John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. And at that beginning, he's saying, it's almost as if you were to rewind all of history, all the way back to the very beginning, and you were to turn around and peer into eternity past, before the creation of the world, there was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And even when we looked at that passage, we saw the preposition there, with is pros. He was toward God. We see this in 118. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared Him or made Him known. That language of, of the Son being in the bosom of the Father, as if He's sitting on the Father's lap, as if He's in the heart of the Father, in this eternal love relationship. Certainly this teaches us something of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? 
It teaches us the distinction of the persons. There, there's an ancient heresy called Sabellianism. Sometimes it's called modalism. Sometimes it's also called modalistic monarchianism. That's a lot of different names. Sabellian, uh, you know, sometimes if you're a heretic, you get a heresy named after you. There was a guy named Sabellius who taught that, that God is only one person who manifests himself in different modes. It's it's contemporary version of this is in what's called oneness Pentecostalism or sometimes called apostolic Pentecostalism. Uh, you ever hear of T.D. Jakes? Who's, ironically, you'll see on the Trinity Broadcasting Network and he doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. But but there's a teaching that 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 there's only one person within God that manifests himself in different ways at different times. So he manifests himself sometimes as father, manifests himself sometimes as son, manifests himself sometimes as the Holy Spirit. So with that teaching, you could not have father and son coexisting. You you have no way of explaining a verse like this. Where Jesus says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world ever was, so that there was a witness of the Father and the Son in eternity past. Also, a verse like this hedges off the heresy, another heresy named after a person, Arianism. Arius taught that there was a time in which the Son was not. Modern-day Arianism, you might encounter it as people come knocking on your front door, the Jehovah's Witnesses. But see here, Jesus is praying, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the world ever was. In other words, the Father and the Son have co-glory. They are consubstantial. They have the same glory. I mean, that, that kind of language is reserved only for deity. Only for that which is to be worshipped. Augustine, one of the early church leaders, said, One must not imagine any space in history when the sun was not. This shared glory would be impossible to understand a verse like Isaiah 48, 11, unless Jesus is God. When God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned in my glory I will not give to another. Friends, this is amazing. Jesus is giving us a window into eternity past this eternal forever love relationship that existed within the Trinity. By the way, Christianity is the only religion that can account for God in His essence being a loving God. Because other religions like, uh, other even monotheistic religions, if Allah always was, how could Allah be a loving God? Because there was no one to love in eternity past. And so in order for Allah to love, he would have then had to create. So then Allah would be dependent upon the creation in order to love. But 
but only the Christian God is the God who is eternally loving within himself and is not dependent upon anything or anyone in the creation. Friends, this should cause us to hold our hands over our mouths and worship and adore the Almighty God. So then, I, I think the uh, one question we can ask is, how or in what way does the Father answer this prayer? Because Jesus' prayer is, Father, glorify me together with you, with the glory I had with you before the world ever began. How does the Father answer that prayer? Well, certainly there must be something of an answer to that prayer in the resurrection of Jesus. As Jesus subjected himself to even death, death on a Roman cross, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, demonstrating that the work was accomplished. And glory was revealed, right? We see, wow! Certainly also at Pentecost. You know, in that upper room, there's 120 believers there at the beginning of the book of Acts. But it's through the coming of the Holy Spirit that the gospel begins to spread and more and more people are bowing their knee to King Jesus and the church is growing so much that within not that many years, it's almost as if Christianity has taken over the world. And Jesus is being glorified. Certainly, it must also be answered, in a sense, with the second coming, right? Because we live in this world and we see that Jesus is blasphemed and maligned every day. And we long for Jesus to come back upon his white horse, treading the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty, we long to see Him bodily with all of His manifest glory coming triumphantly. But also, eternity future. And maybe that's the fullest and final way in which this prayer is answered. Because when you think before the creation of the world, there was no rebellion in existence. There was no corner of whatever exists before the foundation of the world in which there was open rebellion against the triune God. But after creation and fall, we live in a world in which again God is blasphemed over and over. Jesus is not glorified as He ought to be. But there's coming a day in which all evil will be incarcerated in hell forever and ever in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And all rebellion will be confined to hell and receiving its just deserts. And there will be glory for Jesus. 
Certainly this is something akin to what Paul writes of in Philippians. I quoted it to you earlier. The one who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And you know that passage doesn't end there. (laughs) That is not the end of chapter 2. That is not the end of the paragraph. That is not the end of the thought of the Apostle Paul as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Because after that humiliation, it goes on to say, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we're full circle, back to the glory. Through the exaltation of Jesus, there's coming a day in which persons will either with humble regret and disappointment have to bow their knee to Jesus in anguish that they did not bow their knee to Jesus in space and time, but they will have to subject themselves and acknowledge Jesus is King. But then others will also bow, not with disappointment, but with joy and delight. He is the King. He is the Lord. I have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But either way, God will get the glory either in your eternal salvation or your eternal damnation. I urge you to be one of those who gladly subjects yourself to King Jesus here and now. Trusting wholly in the mission that has been accomplished and His saving work. Friend, are you living for the glory of the triune God. Stop living as if every day was your birthday. It's not. As one British preacher says, it's not really about you, silly. It's about God and His glory. And Jesus shows us that as we hear this prayer. And this is what we will sing for all eternity. Let me close with this. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Worthy, glory, mission accomplished. Glory that the Son had with the Father from eternity past. Let's pray.